<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Wake up every morning with just the news. All the news and none of the noise. Hey there, good morning and happy Christmas Eve Eve. It's December 23rd and we're going to spend a special episode here talking with my friend Bob Woodson. You've probably seen him all over the news lately taking on the 1619 project by the New York Times, which says that America is hopelessly racist, that its founding documents are fundamentally flawed and can never be redeemed. Well, Bob Woodson has a different narrative and a completely different take on that. He founded a group called 1776 Unites that is predominantly African-American leaders and scholars who are saying, hold your horses, the founding documents and the founding principles actually laid the framework to empower African Americans, but people of all races. And Bob joins me this morning. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Carrie. Good morning. So I want to talk about the show, start the show talking about your book. So your book is brand new out. It's called Lessons from the Least of These, The Woodson Principles. You have a re-release. Walk us through what are these 10 Woodson Principles? Well, first of all, let me explain uh, to your listeners that the Woodson Center that I founded almost 40 years ago was uh, established to be a voice for low-income leaders uh, in low-income communities. Uh, and so we have provided uh, assistance to grassroots leaders in 2,539 states. Uh, the programs that we've had over the, over the last 50 years to address poverty has always parachuted into these communities, professionally designed uh, uh, programs and ignored the rich resource that is within those communities. So the Woodson Center has worked uh, by going inside these communities and, and identifying people who are achieving against the odds. And then once we find them, they are the social entrepreneurs, they are the catalysts for the revitalization of these communities. And so for the past 40 years, I have walked alongside these leaders, whether it's on Indian reservations, uh, Appalachian whites, uh, uh, urban Hispanics and blacks. But I found that by walking with them, listening to them, watching them, uh, watching them uh, promote redemption and transformation in people who otherwise were lost uh, uh, ignored and forgotten. And so what I was able to do is I learned from the, these, these leaders, what are the principles that, def, that, that explains why they're able to be successful when professional interventions like psychiatrists, uh, drug counselors, and all these other programs have failed. What explains the fact that grassroots leaders can achieve success when all these other professionals have failed. 
And, so and that's the clincher, Bob. So, uh, so what, what, what is that difference? What, what is it about what these leaders do? Because the way I've heard you explain it and some other folks is that you are looking more at the whole of the person uh, as opposed to just looking at the more technical fixes, be it just a policy or a handout. You're looking at more end-to-end, -end, looking at the soul, the body, mind, and spirit. Yeah, some people, again, uh, we, 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 we fail to understand that not everybody is poor for the same reason. Some people are just broke, their character's intact, and they use welfare and other aid the way it was intended as an ambulance service, not a transportation system. But for those that concern us most who are poor because of value challenges that they have, giving them money or opportunities will injure them with the helping hand. And so what they need is, uh, as a precondition of getting any kind of secular help, they need transformation and redemption. And that is something that the grassroots leaders that the Woodson Center serves, but they specialize in, in reaching successfully people like that. They do it in several ways. A, many of them have overcome the very challenges that they're trying to entice others to do. So... They are a witness. Nothing is more powerful influencing uh, influence of a person than, than experiencing with somebody who has been a drug addict, who's been a gangbanger, who's been a prostitute, but through God's grace have been transformed because they are living in proof that redemption is available and possible for them. So that's the first step. And then secondly, they take them by the hand. They say personality influences where you go, but character takes you by the hand. So the grassroots leaders really take these folks that they're trying to help by the hand, take them to the grocery store, teach them how to be responsible mothers and fathers. And as a consequence, um, they are able to have a tremendous impact in transforming uh, uh, people and, they, and those that have been redeemed are provide leadership to the others. I, I often liken it to uh, antibodies, that, that individual uh, antibodies collectively represents an immune system. So when you have a collection of grassroots leaders who are successfully redeeming people in these communities, they are able to impact the entire community because collectively they become an immune system and you see neighborhoods rebuild. So, but it, see, Bob, what, uh, what are those 10 principles, real quick? Well, the real quick one is, first of all, agency. You have to believe that a person has the capacity. No one should do more for someone than they should do for themselves, A. The second one is integrity. You have to be honest. The, the next principle is reciprocity that sometimes we give people without, give to them without the expectation that they should give back for what they receive. That's how dignity is maintained. Resilience, we have to believe that, that the victimizer might have knocked you down, but it is the victim that has to get up. And so in order to get up, you gotta believe they have the capacity to rise. And that is another principle of agency. The other thing that, that, that is, is inspiration that people are motivated to change when they're inspired by victories that are possible, not injuries to be avoided. So inspiration is another uh, 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 principle. Access, you, once a person has been transformed, uh, opportunity needs to accompany, I mean, expectations should be accompanied by opportunity so that people, once they are changed, they can get job training, 
they have access to uh, outside resources. And transparency is uh, another one. That what really uh, uh, stimulates trust, establishes trust, is when someone can be honest and say, listen, I was a drug addict, I was this. So you have to confess to your own brokenness in an, in a, in an at attitude of transparency and by being transparent, it frees the other person to open up about their weaknesses and shortcomings. And so that's, those are the principles that, that establish a meaningful relationship. Excellent. Bob Woodson, stay with us. He's the founder and president of the Woodson Center. We're going to take a quick commercial break and be right back. More with Bob. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey there, good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're with us. So we're gonna go more with Bob Woodson. He is a civil rights hero here for a lot of conservatives and he is with us for the full hour. Let's talk about another issue, the issue of critical race theory. So the Heritage Foundation recently put out a report looking at this concept of critical race theory. And what they say is that it makes the race the prism through which its proponents analyze all aspects of American life. They say that it's the new intolerance and its grip is on America. What is your read on critical race theory, Bob? Well, it's the new racism. <laughs> and it's more, it's more lethal than the old racism. Uh, in other words, it used to be an exotic discussion among academics on campuses. Now it has leaked into the mainstream society and it's being now the defining issue that we should look at each other, not by the content of our character, but the but the color of our skin or our gender, and it, it used to be called stereotyping. <laughs> but now it's called critical race theory. It's the same thing, stereotyping. It's the assumption that if you are a woman, then all women think alike, act alike. And if you are black, that you, you are defined by your race, not by the content of your character. But by, by employing this lens is having devastating effect on, on, on low-income people of all races. For example, uh, the whole Me Too movement was started by a black woman in New York who wanted uh, low-income black women uh, to, to, uh, to acknowledge the abuse and, and to come forward and, and acknowledge it. And elite white women and others on the left seized upon that to define the, the plight of women by wealthy women, you know, uh, on the casting couch in Hollywood. And so the whole movement was, was hijacked by the, the, the elites to the point now where uh, all women are defined as victims. But when you look at the remedies uh, uh, that California, for instance, requires that boards of directors of corporation have on them women. Universities are insisting on quotas for women. 
All right, when you generalize about that, it ignores the plight of women, for instance, who are in prison, who are suffering um, uh, sexual abuse by male guards. Gerardo Rivero did a three-hour, two-hour special talking about the plight of, of, of women in these prisons. As it was, all of the victim, victims were black and all of the victimizers were black. But it never stimulated any kind of national discussion. Um, it, it was ignored. And so when you generalize about any one uh, race of uh, categorize a person, it means low-income people who happen to be in that category, their needs will be ignored. Uh, and it's kind of the same with low-income blacks when you generalize about all blacks. So it's, it's really devastating um, uh, uh, impact. Even the, 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 the KIPP school was established to give ref, a, a refuge for inner city kids so they can get a decent education at these charter schools. But even the white conservatives who started the KIPP school have really caved and, and, uh, in, and dumbed down the standards uh, and, and, and retreated by saying that we shouldn't hold black children to the same standards of performance as we do the rest of society. If so, then we are, they're being racist. So standards for, for young blacks are being dumbed down uh, with devastating impact on, on that. Bob, I want to ask you about something you just said, that you said that critical race theory started out on college campuses and it was more of an academic discussion among elites and now it's spilled out into the broader culture. How did that happen? And do you think there was an interesting op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that argued that on college campuses, because the, the classical liberal, which is someone who allows for the free exchange of ideas, a free debate, they allowed concepts like critical race theory to dominate in the end because they were so tolerant of allowing those types of ideas. And now critical race theory is crowding out and not having tolerance. They are not returning the favor. So do you think that classical liberals, those who allowed for open discourse, were somehow victims of their own openness and their own tolerance to allow this ideology to now take control and basically crowd out anyone who questions it? Absolutely. I think some of them are moral cowards. I really think they're moral cowards but they're more concerned about their innocence and proving to America that they are innocent of being racist and therefore they're willing to sacrifice their principles in order to demonstrate to people that they're not, they're non-racist. Uh, but this is, again, this is having a devastating impact uh, on, on this country where the standards, everything has to be a racial standard if uh, law firms are being required to, uh, to acknowledge their racism, um, it has spawned a real racial racketeering where Montgomery County, where I live, they are undergoing a half million dollar uh, racial inventory. Um, race grievance uh, consultants are, are getting millions of dollars to come in to corporations, to schools and do racial audits. Um, and and, and it, it's just having a devastating effect on, on free speech. Um, and, 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 and again, it redounds to, it's, it's worse than it was during segregation because at least segregation and racism was external. Critical race theory 
is really undermining the, the standards upon which uh, blacks were able to achieve, particularly on, uh, as a result of the assault on the bourgeois values of family, faith, well, and I want and, to ask you about work. this, this question of bourgeois family, just in the minute that we have here. The family, the nuclear family, has been said by some Black Lives Matter activists and even by the Smithsonian African American History Museum that it is a white term, that it was a white concept that is a, a concept of European normalization uh, that has been put devastatingly within a racial lens and has hurt black and Latino and minority Americans, that this concept of the family is whiteness. What's your response to that? It's just the opposite. If you look again, what we did in 1776 is go back and, and get some uh, proof. Between 1930 and 1940, uh, when uh, the black family, we had the blacks had the highest marriage rate of any group in society and elderly people could walk safely in their communities without fear of being assaulted. And that it was because of our faith in God and also the nuclear family that we were able to persevere against slavery and discrimination. Um, even there were some studies done by our scholars that they looked at the records of six plantations after slavery and 75% of those slave families had a man and a woman raising children. So for a whole uh, 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 decades, the black, what, what held black America and, and provided defense against slavery and discrimination were the nuclear family. And, and by that disintegrated, in 1962, we had 85% of all black children raised in two-parent households. And, and incarceration rates were down, but now that's been dis disintegrated. Well, and we've seen this disintegration even as we've seen a rise in the increase in public welfare yes. payments. So, Bob, stay with right. us. We're going to take a quick commercial okay. break here with Bob Woodson, the founder of the Woodson Center and the author of The Woodson Principles. We'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Good morning and welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield. It is Christmas Eve Eve and we have an hour-long special here with Bob Woodson. He is a civil rights leader. He has fought to help those who are impoverished, in particular African-Americans, and he is here again. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. So let's talk about this issue of uh, white nationalism. So I don't want to get into the partisanship of it, but there was a memo that some Democrats put out. And what they said was that the white nationalism is on the rise, specifically white Christian nationalism is a national security threat. And in the document, the group argues that Trump has, quote, empowered the religious right in ways no other administration has before, making significant advances in enacting their Christian nationalist agenda. 
The proposal outlines recommendations for reversing certain policies and, quote, proactively implementing new rules that would, quote, restore secularism to federal governance and disentangle entrenched religious interests from federal policy. Now, again, Bob, I don't want to get into the partisanship of this was a memo by some Democrats, but I want to just get your take because you've worked with Christian leaders for decades, de uh, you know, people from all races. Do you agree with this assessment? Absolutely not. People can, people, like I say, if you're going to believe me or your lying eyes, if you look at what has happened uh, that with the Black Lives Matter following the, uh, the killing of George Floyd, when they took up the banner of social justice for blacks, uh, and they, and, but they quickly migrated from social justice to blacks to burning Bibles in, in uh, Portland, Oregon, to uh, desecrating the Christian cross, to taking down statues of, of, uh, of, of Frederick Douglass. Uh, so the, 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 the radical left has quickly migrated away from social justice to really using race in America and America's uh, birth defect of slavery really as a bludgeon to denigrate American society and undermine our civic institutions. They are the ones who are rioting in Chicago in the name of Black Lives Matter, saying that, um, that, that rioting is a form of reparations. And, and for three days that those riots took place, the Washington Post never published a single uh, news account of those riots. And on the streets of uh, Washington, D.C., at a recent uh, a Trump uh, rally, it wasn't uh, Trump's people or uh, uh, creating the violence. A, a, a white woman with a Black Lives Matter T-shirt on started to violently assault a black woman pushing a toddler in a baby carriage. And she had to be restrained. And yet there was not one discussion, wasn't reported in the paper. Another black woman was pulled to the ground by her hair by, by Black Lives uh, Antifa and Black Lives Matter advocates because she was carrying an American flag. Again, this was not reported. So the violence that we're witnessing is not coming from Christians. It's coming from those who are supposed to be advocates for justice for black uh, people. Innocent people sitting at a restaurant in Washington, DC, people are throwing firecrackers in, walking up behind them and punching them in the head. This violence is not coming from, black, from white Christians, nor is it being inspired by them. But instead, it's coming from the so-called social justice warriors who are supposed to be champions of the marginalized. So I just think it's a fraud for people to talk about the, the, um, the, the, the sins of, of, of white Christians. But what also disturbs me as a veteran of the civil rights movement, where is the Congressional Black Caucus, the Urban League, the NAACP to speak out against the desecration of the Christian cross, the denigration of the nuclear family as being Eurocentric and therefore racist. Where is the outcry? Where's the pushback against that? Their silence is very telling and disturbing. Well, there was a report from The Atlantic several years ago that looked at a study that showed secular conservatives are actually far more intolerant than religious conservatives. 
They said that religious conservatives are actually more tolerant because they have a concept of universal brotherhood, a concept of universal love and justice, and so they are actually more tolerant when it comes to gender differences, racial differences, and immigration status differences. Religious conservatives, according to the study that was reported on in The Atlantic, which is a liberal publication, found that religious conservatives are actually more tolerant than secular conservatives. How does that square with your experience? That is that is the case because, I mean, religious conservatives understand that, that, that our faith is based upon the whole notion of second chances, of redemption, of, of, of forgiveness. And that's, is, they're not the ones out punching people in the face because they differ, differ with them politically. I haven't seen any of that at, at these rallies, but I have seen secular uh, uh, left uh, in the name of social justice plummeting people and beating them so it's just not it's not true that that uh, that the, that the intolerance is coming from christians and when it comes to your work because you've helped people who have been former drug addicts former gang members people who've been impoverished to really turn their lives around you've seen this over and over in your work and many of the people you work with work with christian pastors and christian ministers both white, black, Latino, and other races, how does their Christian faith inspire these turnarounds that you've seen? 98% of the dramatic uh, transformation and acts of redemption have come from Christian uh, faith. Our grassroots, whether it's Pastor Freddie Garcia, Jubal Garcia, Willie Peterson, Reverend Willie Peterson, in Youngstown, Ohio, Gary Wyatt, uh, in, 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 in Ohio, uh, all over this country, when I go into these communities over the years, part of, in fact, part of what my principles, all of them are based upon a, a foundation of faith. Only faith delivers them. Many of our grassroots leaders have left, uh, lost family members. And they, and they have overcome tremendous obstacles in their path towards uh, 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 restoring their communities. 98% of them, when they ask for the reason or how and why they were able to accomplish these great changes, they will turn to their Christian faith. It is a belief in Christ that, that he was the one who promoted the redemption that enables them to transform not only their own lives. So... So they're unapologetic about that. And what about in terms of uh, Islam? So Islam was a counter for a lot of black Americans. Real quick, and just briefly, what have you seen uh, with faith in Islam within the black community about turning their lives around as well? My first exposure to a faith-based transformation was from to the nation of Islam. It is this faith in God that transforms people, and that takes on... Uh, uh, different uh, expressions. And so my first experience with a faith conversion, I saw uh, people who are Muslims, who were gang members, who turned their lives around. It is really faith in God and everyone has a different path. But the main point is that you, you need a faith experience as a precondition of transformation and redemption. All right, Bob Woodson, stay with us. We're going to take a quick commercial break. Bob Woodson, the founder of the Woodson Center and the author of The Woodson Principles. He is an icon here in civil rights. You've seen him breaking the Internet with pushing back on the 1619 Project. He's going to stay with us. We'll be right back.
Hey there, good morning, and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield. It is Christmas Eve Eve, and we have a man who is an icon in the civil rights movement. His name is Bob Woodson, still with me for the full hour. Bob, I want to talk about the issue of neo-segregation that seems to be popping up. So I'll give you an example. In Oregon, there was a lawsuit that was filed against the state of Oregon because Oregon has created a $62 million relief fund for businesses, for COVID businesses that have been hit by businesses. And the state of Oregon has said that this fund is only to be given to black owned businesses. And so what this lawsuit has been filed by a Latina woman, she filed and sued the state of Oregon because she said she applied for this fund and she was denied it because there is 0% black ownership of her business and because she does not identify as black and no one in the equity holding identifies as black, she has been denied. So she is filing a lawsuit. She says this is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution. What say you about this organ? You know, again, it's a throwback. To, we're almost retreating back to the pre-civil rights period where we were compartmentalized, we were segregated. I mean, segregation is wrong regardless of who's sponsoring it. And so we really are going back to the future uh, with, with uh, assuming that all blacks share everything in common and therefore you can generalize of the black community. Uh, the, the, the greatest income gap in the black community, in the country is not between blacks and whites, for example, it is between low-income blacks and upper-income blacks. You cannot generalize, and therefore, if you try to do that, you're going to, uh, you're going to benefit some at the expense of the other. I assure you, with that kind of fund, low-income blacks will not benefit. Just like when the, the, the poverty programs and, and, and affirmative action, all it is is another form of affirmative action that has a huge history of failure. And why does it specifically fail? I'll give you, I'll give you an example of doing the AA set-aside programs where the government said 10% of all con contracts must go to minority or black uh, firms. One company that I know, and this is what the man told me, he bid it on a $3 million uh, 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 construction project that would uh, install the Alaskan pipeline, $3 million. He won the contract. He then, once he got the contract, he took $300,000 or 10% and subcontracted it to a white firm who then came in and hired all whites and did the construction. This is a pattern that has been consistent, is that bogus companies are set up by blacks to win these contracts. And then instead of doing it what it was supposed to do, generate uh, 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 jobs for blacks, it did just the opposite. I, I could spend here all day giving you examples. 1973 to, to um, 93, we put up $3 billion because they said it was a dearth of blacks in the broadcast industry, owners of TV stations. Well, after 20 years and $3 billion, what what you found as blacks who took these contracts and then kept them for two years and then sold them to white companies. And so at the end of 20 years, there were fewer blacks who owned broadcast properties than there were before, but it was a windfall for the blacks who came in 
and they became rich, but uh, in the name of affirmative action. But it was not, it did not deliver uh, a more blacks on television or blacks being employed in the uh, communications industry. And so there are a lot of examples of it being exploited by, uh, by one class, a group of, uh, of blacks in the name of helping all blacks. That is a consistent pattern of affirmative action programs throughout the history of affirmative action in America. So in terms of the path forward, because it is true that African-Americans have a much higher poverty rate, they have a lower household wealth rate than whites, what's the solution? Well, first of all, you can't even say that. I mean, and, 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 and because if you look at studies, some of our scholars in 1776 have, have taken a look at these income disparities, you will find that second-generation Blacks from the Caribbean have, and Nigerians coming over here and their, uh, their families, some of the Nigerians and Caribbean families, even though they are Black, they have higher median income rates than do whites. If racism were the single culprit, then why are second Caribbean blacks able to achieve income, even income superiority? Nigerians have are better educated than whites, in some cases, even better educated than Asians. And so it is important um, to, I know that we're entering a period of, 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 of post-truth. <laughs> Uh, uh, but we ne nevertheless, we need to look at the facts and look at the data uh, before we jump to the conclusion, generalize that uh, and ask ourselves, why are Nigerians, other Africans, why are second generation Caribbean blacks who look like any other blacks that are here? Why is it that they have income uh, parity, education parity when other blacks do not? It's an interesting concept. I, I spoke with a, an immigrant family who came to the U.S. and the parents were worried because they said that their children were told that they were victims when they got to America, but they had never heard that growing up in their country of origin. Bob Woodson, stay with us. We'll be right back here. Bob Woodson is the founder of the Woodson Center and the author of the book called The Woodson Principles. He's a fountain of wisdom, as you can tell right now, uh, and I'm glad he's been with us for the hour. Stay tuned. We got a little bit more with him coming right up. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Good morning and welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're here with us. Well, we're going to close out this hour again with my friend Bob Woodson. He's the founder of the Woodson Center and also the author of the book, The Woodson Principles. Bob, I want to talk about white working class Americans because I know this is something with your project, 1776 Unites, you've looked at and looking at the ways that white working class Americans really have a lot in common with black Americans. What have you seen? 
you know, they, they really do. I just think what the left is trying to do is segment us uh, and segregate us or, or, or try to separate us by race. In, in the whole 38 years that I've had the Woodson Center, we have, we have had um, participants from low-income white communities, Appalachia, low-income working class communities, black, white, brown. In, in all of the conferences and seminars we've had together, race never came up one time during those encounters. That is because the people that we have brought together the, the, what, what is a primary concern to them is their brokenness and how they have overcome that brokenness. And that's all they want to share. Uh, that's why Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance was a powerful uh, example that the trials and tribulations of low-income Blacks mirrors exactly the trials and tribulations of low-income uh, 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 Blacks and Hispanics. That's why it is important for us as a goal for 1776 Unite is to desegregate poverty. We need to desegregate it and we need to deracialize race as a precondition for us coming together across racial lines and class lines and begin to address the problems of people who are in poverty, uh, or low income poverty. The only way we're going to mount an attack in reducing poverty is that we can begin to look at the people in these communities uh, as a, a community unto itself. Uh, we, what we hope to do in April is have a conference that will bring together low-income blacks and low-income white, J.D. Vance and, and uh, Clarence Page. Both of them grew up uh, in, in, in that area of Ohio, uh, Middletown, Ohio, and so we really think there needs to be some reconciliation between uh, low-income blacks and, and upper and low-income blacks and, and low-income whites, but but we must uh, avoid uh, being pitted against one another. They must come together to talk about what are the shared values and what are the shared strategies that can help elevate everybody. That's the spirit of American America. And I want to put up a headline from Human Events. They recently wrote an essay, and I would say the managing editor is actually Asian-American. But this essay is looking at what they called the reclaiming of white America's lost moral authority. And it's an essay about how to counter the Marxist left in a way that inspires conservatives and independents across the country. And one of the arguments uh, they look at is this, this idea that the vacuum of moral authority that comes from simply knowing that one's race is associated with racism. Basically, the critical race theory argument that if you're white, you need to be quiet, you need to sit down and shut up, and you have no moral, moral authority that you are inherently by your family, by your genetics, by your very race, you are morally inferior, or you just have nothing to say because of the legacy in which you've benefited. What is your response to that? That runs counter to the Judeo-Christian ethic and values that we are all sinners and that we should never be defined by any of our birth defects. We should never be defined totally by what we were, otherwise, every time uh, all of us at one or some people at one point were Saul's who became Paul's. America is defined by second chances and therefore we should never be a slave to our past or always 
be relegated to defining ourselves by what we used to be. But America is a country of second chances. America is a country of redemption uh, and transformation. And that's what America, we should celebrate. Black Americans fought in every war in this country. And we didn't fight to preserve segregation. We fought for the American promise. And, and that promise, uh, Dr. King and all of the other leaders that, that sacrificed were fighting to, to, to uh, compel America to live up to its ideals. But, but, but if we're always defined by what we used to be, we can, there's no winners. There is, what does success look like if we accept the fact that all whites are villains to be punished and all blacks are victims to be compensated. What, what, what does victory look like? Where do we go? And what about just the, the you mentioned Dr. Martin Luther King, if, if you're a white person and you say, you can't judge someone by the color of their skin, but their content of their character, does this not go directly against this? Well, that's why I really think that the savior of America is going to be low-income blacks. They are the sleeping giant because they are the ones who are suffering most as a result of this degradation of our principles, of the nuclear family, of our faith. They are the ones who are suffering the most. And therefore, I really think that, I hope that and pray that whites undergo race fatigue and, and they can look beyond their search for innocence and have the moral courage to stand up and, 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 and push back against the accusations of their racism. Uh, but I think it's moral. It, and there are some whites who have seen Dennis Prager, for instance, has always been a, a man that was not a guilty white man. And he enjoyed the respect of large numbers of blacks. White America has to gain, regain the courage not to be uh, intimidated. All right, Bob, stand thank up you so for much. The country. We'll be right back with our Christmas message. Stay with us, folks. Hey there, good morning and welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield, it is Christmas Eve Eve, and I wanna close out the show with giving Bob Woodson, civil rights fighter, a chance to give everyone a Christmas message and just let folks know how they could support him. Bob? Well, first of all, God has blessed us in this wonderful nation. People of color are risking their lives to get here to enjoy that which God has given us. So we need to, to be excited about that. Uh, if you'd like to, to reach us, it's uh, uh, 1776 Unites with an S dot com. Uh, we, you can support us, the Woodson Center uh, dot org. But 1776 is where you can reach and learn about our essays and learn about our ways to, to push back against the race grievance industry and celebrate the American promise. God bless you and happy holidays. Thank you, Bob, and God bless you. And God bless your work. We appreciate what you're doing to unite the country. And we want to wish all of our viewers a Merry Christmas as well and Happy Holidays. We've got a best of programming come up, coming up here on Just the News tomorrow. But stay tuned here for War Room. It is coming up here on Real America's Voice where we say Merry Christmas. We say Happy Holidays, Happy Hanukkah, uh, whatever holiday you're celebrating. We wish you the very best. We say God bless. 
stay with us, folks. We will be right back here with more programming on Real America's Voice.